0: Good morning. My name's Peter Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and uh, it's good to see you this morning. Thanks for being here. We've been uh, working our way through Second Timothy, and I want to ask you this morning um, if you've if you've ever been distracted in uh, in life, with things. Uh, I want to tell you uh, just two times that I was distracted in my life. Um, both happened in a fast food drive through. Um, and uh, if you 're anything like me, um, often when you are waiting in the line for the drive through for the cars in front of you to, to you know order and, and go ahead, you might get a little distracted and so uh, the first time that this happened to me I, I just I, I have this habit of when i 'm in the drive through and I 'm waiting for the cars i 'll put the car in park, um, normally put the handbrake on and just kind of sit back relax, and then when they move i'm back to drive and move forward and that was kind of, that's just my pattern and and I was in the States and I was uh, in a fairly long drive-through, I think it was McDonald's and um, that was just what I was doing, you know, I was putting it in park, I was, you know, relaxing and then waiting for the the next car to go and so this car went in front of me and um, my brain thought I'd put it in park but I actually hadn't put it in park and I kind of just you know, stopped with my, my foot on the brake and then released it and was looking down, didn't even know my car was still moving um, and got a very, very big shock when all of a sudden there is this 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 hit into the car in front of me and I realised I never put it in park because I was just distracted. I was looking around, I wasn't really paying attention. And so that was the first time I crashed in the drive through. The second time I crashed in the drive through <laughs> was... Um, <clears throat> when I was in, I think we were, no, we might not have been engaged, but we were dating at the time and uh, going through the drive through with my, my now wife, girlfriend, and uh, you might be able to remember back to when you were dating, and um, and uh, you just take any opportunity you can to kiss, and um, <clears throat> we were going through the drive through and again, we just, you know, we're waiting for this car to go in front of us, and so I leaned over to give my girlfriend a kiss, not realising I hadn't put it in park, I hadn't... <laughs> Stopped the car and, uh, you know, it was a long way to lean over and the foot comes off the brake and we start moving and, um, you know, midway through a kiss and bang, I hit the car in front of me. So I've just got this ability to, um, I've never had a car crash anywhere on the road, it's just drive Um It's the most dangerous place for me because there's a stop in front of me and I'm just looking for something else to do or think about or make out or whatever it is. <laughs> and um, and I, just, I just get distracted, right? And I think all of us at some stage can think about a time where we've been distracted, whether it's talking to your spouse and all of a sudden you just pull out your phone, you start looking at it mid conversation and your husband or wife might be like, do you know I'm talking to you or in the middle of something? Um, then, uh, you, you, that, it doesn't even have to be your spouse, that happens all the time. Um, or uh, somebody is talking to you, or I'm talking to you right now, and your head is somewhere else completely um, thinking about something, and the words are just going straight past your ears. They're not going in at all. Uh, we all get distracted, and uh, I, want to, I want to talk this morning a little bit about being distracted. I think Paul wants to talk to Timothy this morning about being distracted, and um, <clears throat> it's one of those things that we don't talk about that much. We, it doesn't get as much airtime. I think there's three major reasons why people um, who are in ministry, pastors, um, have to um, no longer be in ministry, and they all start with D, so let me give you those um, from, from the beginning. The first one is that they get deceived, and what I mean by that is that they stray from the truth, and we, uh, we hear about this quite often, where there is a well-known pastor and uh, they've been part of a church, and they've got some following, and then years down the track or later down the track, they decide, um, actually, I don't think I believe this stuff anymore, and we've all heard of those stories that go on, and so they are deceived by... Um, things that are not the truth. The second reason is disqualification for moral reasons. And we hear about this all the time, where there is a famous pastor or somebody who is a leader in the church and uh, people have looked to them as their leader, as their example, and we just think they could never do any wrong. And then all of a sudden stuff comes out, stories get leaked of you know, inappropriate behavior or relationships, and that gets a lot of airtime. And we see that. And then uh, the third one though is, is uh, being distracted. And this is when we get caught up um, doing things that we shouldn't be doing. Not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they just become our main focus um, instead of doing the things that we were born to do and created to do. And so I want to talk about the third area because we're all prone to this as well as we are the first two, but this one just sneaks up on us out of nowhere and doesn't get a lot of the airtime that the first two do. And we're going to see this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and if you want to turn there, you can, that Christians can't afford to be distracted. Just before we get there, let me give you the context of what's going on in uh, 2 Timothy so far and what we've talked about in the first couple of weeks. Paul, who's our author, he's writing from prison to his protege, Timothy, who is, he's left in charge of the uh, church in Ephesus. He writes to him and he talks to him about um, preaching and protecting the gospel. And we talked about this the first week, that this is the first and foremost call of the church. And uh, in the second week, we talked about what's that going to cost you. And Paul's very upfront that actually this is going to cause you to suffer. And so, uh, just before he outlines chapter 2, he talks about two examples of a, a positive example of those who have... Um, who sorry, a positive of one person who did this. His name was Anissaforus, Anissa and he came and he visited Paul, and he sought him out in, uh, in, in prison and risked his life and his reputation, and he refreshed Paul, and he did it multiple times, and he was an example of one who was willing... To, uh, to take the gospel and to live it out, even at his own expense. And then he used uh, a negative example of two guys who had turned away from Paul and uh, rejected Paul and his gospel. And so um, that was kind of what he's just said. And now he's going to turn to Timothy after talking about these two and give him further instructions as to what it looks like for him to be, again, a positive example, to be obedient to the call of the gospel. And so this is where we're going to start in, in verse 1 when he says to Timothy, he says, you then, my child, <clears throat> be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> he says, Timothy, you ought to preach the gospel, protect the gospel, no matter the cost, it's going to cause you to, be, uh, to, to suffer. And whatever you go through you're going to need the grace of God to go through it. The verb there is um, it, to, to be strengthened. It is, a, uh, it is a present tense passive imperative in the Greek. What that means is, present tense means that it is an ongoing uh, requirement. Right? This is continually being strengthened. It's in the passive. That means you don't... Uh, Do the action, you receive the action. And so Paul says, you are going to need to be strengthened by grace. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, Timothy, if you're going to try to do this in your own strength, you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to. You're going to burn out. You're going to give up. You're going to back away. And we see that in Timothy Uh, throughout the letter, that that is the trajectory to which he is heading. Paul says, you have a responsibility, it's actually beyond your ability. And all of us here this morning have experienced this one way or another, where we've heard some teaching, uh, either from the pulpit or in Christianity, and we feel really, really motivated. And we walk away thinking, I'm going to change this, do this, this week, and then we wake up the next morning and that motivation has disappeared, it's gone. And uh, the habits of our life kick in, and all of a sudden we're unmotivated, there is a lack of desire, or we just plainly forget. And, And sermons have this ability to inspire, and that's a good thing, and I'll just tell you this morning, I'm going to inspire the heck out of you this morning, so get ready for that. But You're going to wake up tomorrow morning, and uh, some of that inspiration and some of that joining of the body that we experience of joy and and inspiration is is going to um, not not feel quite the same. And we've all experienced this, where Sunday feels a lot different to Monday, to Tuesday, to Wednesday, and you get to the end of the week and you kind of even forgotten what's talked about on Sunday. And and Paul reminds Timothy that hey. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do this in your own strength. You're not going to be able to kind of muster up this this desire and willingness all the time by your own ability. You're going to need to be continually strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. You are actually going to need to be dependent on something other than yourself. And this is not really a popular message in society. There is this idea that we need to be strong and independent and reliant on no one. And the more you mature, the less dependent you become. And in Christianity, it actually works the other way. The more mature you are in your faith, the more dependent you become on the Spirit of God to work in your life. And you realize there is not really anything that good that resides in me. I am totally dependent on God at work in my life, if there is anything good to come out of me. And Paul says to Timothy, before I go into this section, you need to know this has to be done by the grace of God. You have to be continually strengthened by it. So what's one way that we can do that? I I think the most effective way that we do this is by prayer. You see, prayer in and of itself is, is a dependent action. We are speaking to someone and asking them for things and to do work in our life that we can't do ourselves. Prayer shows a dependence apart from ourselves. And so we ask God to work in our life. We ask Him to, to change our hearts. We ask Him to do work in us that we can't do ourselves. That, uh, sometimes we have to ask Him to give us a desire to do these things that we don't have there. And that's a really honest and good prayer, to pray to God and say, I don't even want to do this right now. I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel called to do this. Can you change my heart? Can you change my desires? And that would be a good prayer for you to pray this morning, every day, this week, for the rest of your life even. Just to say, God, I need Your grace if I'm ever going to live out the call of being a Christian. If you want to know more about that, read Romans 7, about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. So now that he says that, he can go on to what he is calling Timothy to do by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, the message stays the same. Paul did not expect that the future leaders of the church would produce new or different teaching. It would stay the same. The gospel does not change. And on this would go from generation to generation to generation, all the way up until right now, as we sit here, we have heard the gospel. And it is the gospel that Paul preached And that is why we preach out of the Scriptures, because it is the apostles' words in written form. We have it here in front of us. We preach out of the Bible. We don't preach some sort of happy, clappy uh, inspiration from Oprah or uh, you know, some of the, the latest trends on social media or anything from influencers. Um, in the church, we preach out of the Scriptures, And then he's going to share with Timothy, just like we have looked in previous weeks, of what it's going to cost him. He says in verse 3, you better be ready to suffer. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul calls those uh, who suffer a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And now he's going to use three metaphors to help unpack this and to explain what it means. The first metaphor is a soldier, the second one's an athlete, and the third one is a farmer. And uh, that appeals to anyone who may be in that audience. Uh, the, the, the soldier would have appealed to the, anyone with a Roman background, the athlete to anyone with a, a Greek background, and then the farmer to anyone with a Jewish background. And so let's start with the soldier and, and see what he says about that. This is verse 4. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He says, Timothy, you're a soldier. And soldiers have a singular focus. They don't get caught up in civilian affairs. You see, if you're a soldier, you are trained for one purpose, and that is to go to war. And when it comes, you must be ready. And if you want to prepare for war, you can't get caught up in other things that may distract you from the task. A soldier cannot be like everybody else. There are certain things that others have, that others pursue, that others get wrapped up in that soldiers cannot. You think of when a recruit uh, joins the army, what happens? They go to a training camp and they're given a uniform, Right, And they say, these are the clothes you're going to wear. You don't have to make a decision. We've made it for you. It's green. You're going to wear it every single day when you're on duty. And that's that. Right? Because they can't afford to be looking through their wardrobe thinking about, what should I wear today? What's going to be fashionable? How do I look good in front of the lieutenant? What about my peers? It's like, no, you're wearing green. This is it. And you wear it every day. Right? What else happens? They, they go to the, the, the training camp and they shave their heads. They just say, everyone's going to have the same haircut. You're all going to get your head shaved, so you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You don't even have to comb it. And uh, that's just that, because we don't want you to be worried about those things or to be thinking about those things. You have a singular focus. You wear green. You have a shaved head. And you do what we tell you to do. You can't afford to be thinking about those things while you are training to be in a war. What else happens? They provide you your meals, all right? These are not like amazing meals. It's not gruel, uh, but you're not going to win any Michelin stars for the food in the army. It's like it's full of nutrients. Nutrients. It's got everything that you need. It fills your stomach, and you eat it, and you go on with your training. You stay in adequate lodgings. They tell you where you're living. They give you what you need. It's not fancy. It's not luxurious, but it is adequate. And then they give you a routine, and they teach you a discipline That you are to operate by and from the moment you join you are given everything you need to do your job and to be ready for war and anything else that is not absolutely necessary to the task is decided for you because you are a soldier you have a job to do lives are at stake countries rise and fall at the movements of the army The soldier has a higher calling and therefore they don't get to be like everybody else. You might remember at the beginning of the year as Russia was looking to um, invade Ukraine, the uh, US army or military was put on high alert. I think that's what it's called when they're put on high alert. And basically that meant if you're on leave, if you're about to take leave, if you've got plans to take leave, if you had a holiday booked in, cancel it. You don't get to go On leave anymore because we could potentially be at war tomorrow. And so everyone was called back to their platoon, right? And you think, well, well, that's not very fair. I mean, everybody else gets to go on leave and take their holiday and things like that. So, yeah, but you're in the army, you're a soldier, you come back, you have a job to do. Paul tells Timothy, You're a soldier. You're a soldier of Jesus Christ. You can't afford to be entangled in civilian affairs. It's not that you can't have a life, it's not that you can't be involved in these things, but you can't be entangled in them. The entangled word there, it's this, this closely interconnected idea. It's it's the word empleko in the Greek, which is where we get our English word implicate, to implicate. Peter, uh, in his second uh, letter, he uses it as he describes the sheep who are entangled in thorns and thistles. They are wrapped up so much that they actually can't get themselves out. And so it's not that we can't have things to do with civilian affairs or be involved in them. But when they start to bleed into our lives, that you cannot tell the two apart... Paul says you're entangled, where well, you can't distinguish one priority from the other. You know, and, and we just live in a world where there are multiple things vying for our heart and our affections all the time, every day, apart from Jesus. And you need to know that you're a soldier and you can't afford to be entangled in those things. They aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves. They're just just things that you aren't called to be entangled in to make your main priority over the top of the mission that that you are a soldier in Christ's army. That you are a part of a gospel movement that is worldwide. Here's some examples of of how this just kind of can look for us in in our life. Sport. Sport. Sport is a great thing. I, I love playing sport. I've played it a lot, but often we can just put sport in front of anything that has to do with our relationship with the Lord or with the body of believers. And so if something comes up on a Sunday, it's like, oh, I've got, I've got this activity on, this sporting event. It's like, that's the, that's the priority. And we go to that first and uh, the church or church service, it gets put um, to the side. Um, at the moment, social media I mean, it just becomes a priority for people where it should never be a priority. It comes to just to the point where we we spend more time on that um, and are quick to do that and first to do that before we would even get into this at times. And we choose that over reading the Scriptures. Uh, Sometimes work just becomes such a priority for us that we work so hard all the time that we have no energy left or desire to spend any time with the Lord. Sometimes we are stretched so financially and our hearts are so attached to money and earning and investing and growing our wealth that we, we actually don't have a, any room in our heart for giving, for just being really generous with God, what God has already given us. Sometimes we're so busy during the week and just fill up our, our calendars that like Sunday rolls around and the idea of coming to church in the morning is just exhausting and, and, and so, you know, it's a, it's a once every, once a month, once every five, six weeks that we decide, yeah, I think I've got some margin this Sunday. We can feed our, our hobbies and our passions more so than we can feed the gifts that God has given us in order to further the mission. And we talked about that last week. Paul says to Timothy, Paul says to us, we are soldiers first and foremost... And that means, at times, we cannot afford to be entangled in things that others can. The next example that he uses is the athlete, verse 5. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. At the time Paul's writing, there is something known as the Isthmian Games, right? And, And there's also the Olympics Games Going on, And they started 582 BC, right? So we're talking like 600 years before uh, Paul's writing. So they have a bit of a, a reputation now. They are uh, they're big events. And if you wanted to compete in the games as an athlete, you would have to swear an oath before you competed. And you would do this in front of Zeus, uh, with the, the, the Greek god, or a statue of him. And uh, between two uh, pieces of boar's flesh because that was, oh, the, the pig was used a lot for sacrificial um, ceremonies, <clears throat> and you would swear an oath uh, there, and uh, you would say, in nothing will I sin against the Olympic Games, and that for the last 10 successive months leading up to the Games, you would, uh, you would say that you have strictly followed the regulations required for an athlete in their training. These regulations would include prescribed exercise, living a separated life um, in in regard to ordinary and lawful pursuits, and eating according to a strict diet. And if the athlete broke these rules, they were disqualified from the games. They were barred from being able to compete. And Paul tells Timothy, just like the athlete, there are rules in which as a Christian, you compete by it. Now, Christians don't like the sound of rules, right? We kind of push back against rules and like, no, 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 freedom, not, not rules. And, and that can be true in some regards, but I just got to tell you, everything in life has rules. And uh, the problem is not whether we have rules or not. The problem is whether we turn those rules into legalistic rules. And, and I'll explain some of that in a sec, but we have a rule here at the church that <clears throat> um, our services start at 9am on a Sunday. And uh, we, we, it's not, we don't maybe call it a rule or anything like that. But if we didn't have that rule and we just said, hey, we're going to have a service and never told you the time or the day, um, you know what? We probably wouldn't have a service because no one would know when to show up and no one would know even where to show up. And so it would just be, you know, non-existent. And so rules are actually really helpful to have any type of organization or any purpose, right? And everything in the world looks like this. You have to have some rules, some perimeters, otherwise uh, you don't get anything done or you can't achieve anything. And so everything in life has rules, and Christianity has rules as well. Where we get into trouble in Christianity is where we think if we obey these rules, they give us salvific merit, Right, and this is what legalism is, is: is that when we think, well, we we uh, if we obey these rules, we um, have this uh, merit before God, and a qualification that we uh, we've been saved by, and then um, that's just not true. And so we don't hold to uh, that, that. Rules give us this. Um, this quality before God, and that's why He chose to save us. We believe that we were, we were saved by grace through faith, that like when God looked down at us, He didn't look at us and say, okay, so this person has followed some of the rules, and so I'm going to choose to save them, and this person hasn't followed some of the rules, and so I'm not going to choose like that. that's not what we hold. But we do hold that when we are saved by grace through faith, that we live a new life, that we are a new creation. And part of being in that new creation is that we have a new commanding officer and his name's Jesus Christ. And he has called us to live in a certain way and he's given us commands and responsibilities. And there are rules that come with that. They don't give us any more salvific merit than we had previously. They are done out of love for our Saviour. And so Paul says, Timothy, hey, you are an athlete. There are, there are rules for which you are able to compete in these games. And then he goes on to <clears throat> talk about rewards. And uh, he's, he's mentioned this in the two examples already. He talks about rewards from Jesus in the kingdom. He says, the soldier is seeking to please the one who enlisted him. The athlete is striving for the crown, And now he's going to introduce the farmer in verse 6, and he says this, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He's a hard-working farmer. If anyone has been a farmer and you're not a hard worker, you wouldn't be a farmer for very long. You'd probably be a dead farmer, actually, because you live and breathe by the crops that you plant. And uh, it's often a job that you're up before the sun and sometimes working under the moon. And you plant and you harvest, and Paul says you're entitled to a share of the crops. What's he saying? He's saying there are rewards for those who use this life to protect and to preach the gospel at whatever cost it may be, even to the point of suffering and death. And that is going to require that you live an undistracted life. Simply put, Paul is saying, suffer now, glory later. Suffer now, glory later. So let's just recap where Paul has gone, just just so we know where he is about to go. In verse 1 and 2, he's given us the fuel by which we are to continue on the message. It's by the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. And uh, then he has entrusted that the message will be passed on to those who will faithfully teach the same message. On and on and on, it will go and then in, in verses 3 to 7, he's given us the three illustrations of single-mindedness, that of the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, including the rewards that will follow. And in verse 8 to, th- eight to 13, we have the basis for the appeal to Timothy to be an undistracted soldier, an upright athlete, and an industrious farmer. This is what he says in verse 8. "'Remember Jesus Christ, "'Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, "'as preached in my gospel.'" Remember Jesus Christ, the one who first suffered and sacrificed himself, the one who hung on that cross, taking the wrath of God for the punishment of our sin that we deserved. It was by suffering that our salvation had be, has been purchased. It was not free. Someone had to pay for that, and it was paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you remember Jesus Christ on that cross. Not only remember Him on the cross, remember that He is risen from the dead. We have victory over death. Eternal life has been granted to those who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Timothy, you remember that right now you suffer. Right now it looks like you're failing, but victory is assured because Jesus lives. And then even though as a Christian sometimes it looks as though we are failing, ultimately only one outcome is. Is possible, and that is that Jesus is coming back, the kingdom will be established, and you will live forever with Him. And the resurrection is the guarantee that that is going to take place. Woodrow Wilson used to say, I would rather fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. And Paul is saying that to Timothy and to us today. He says, you are going to suffer. It's going to feel like you're failing. It's going to look like you're failing. But ultimately, you will succeed because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Timothy, you remember the suffering on the cross. You remember the victory over sin and death. And you remember he is the offspring of David. That sounds a little bit weird in that sequence, right? But what was going on at the time, and I'll just quickly go through this. There was this heresy going around at the time called docetism, which basically said Jesus didn't have a body. And what, was, what he really had <clears throat> excuse me, was this celestial substance that didn't actually get uh, crucified. It never experienced suffering. It was never put to death. And, uh, and so there was this, this idea that, that that was going around. And so Paul is very quick to shut that down and says, no, he comes from the line of David. He fulfills the Old Testament. He was born of a man, of a virgin Mary, and he walked amongst us. He had a body. He suffered on the cross. It was not a celestial substance that didn't feel pain or go through suffering. Timothy, this gospel is true. You remember Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith as the gospel that I preach to you, the one who first suffered for the gospel. Paul is no different. Look at verse 9. He, he, talking about the gospel, he says, "...for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect." that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's not exempt. He suffers for the gospel. The pattern continues, suffer now, glory later. There is no exception for him. And all believers should anticipate that this pattern continues on and on until the kingdom comes. In one form or another, if you choose to be a good soldier and further the gospel mission, you will suffer in some way at some stage. And if you haven't, I said last week, just keep sharing the gospel. Keep doing it. At some stage, there will be suffering. And so Paul endures whatever comes his way because there are those, he says, who have not heard yet, who have not believed, who have not received the gospel that God has in mind, who will. And Paul is a part of that. Paul is a part of those who are yet to hear and who are to be included in eternal glory. And so Paul says, I suffer. I suffer for Jesus. I suffer for those who I know will one day be saved, but are not yet. It says Paul, Paul says, "I'm bound, but the word of God is not. It goes forth, it cannot be stopped. And Paul endures whatever comes his way: prison, beatings, floggings, and eventually death. There is a song uh, and it says, "The body they may kill." God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You know who wrote that? Martin Luther added that verse in this song called Ein Festerberg ist unser Gott. Anyone know their German out there? wants to translate that? A mighty fortress is our God. And Paul could endure all types of hardship for the salvation of others who would be joined to Christ in eternal glory. Paul is so fanatical about this. He is so passionate about this. He has used his life for this. And as he writes it, he is just so uh, overcome with joy for the mission that he bursts into song. And what we have next is this early hymn that Christians would sing in the first century. And in this hymn, there is encouragement and there is warning. Our hymns don't have a lot of warning, but uh, this one has some warning. And so, it's just interesting and insightful to see. This is when they would gather, this was the songs that they would sing, or one of them anyway. And we can kind of get this idea by the way that it's all put, put together. And you can see some of the pattern um, within it, just indicating uh, either a creed or a hymn. And, uh, and so Paul quotes this early Christian hymn in verses 11 to 13. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, okay? And Paul says this all the time. He's just like, this is, take this to the bank. He says, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny us. Himself, he says, "If we have died with him, we'll also live with him." This is kind of why we, we, we do, uh, This is why we get baptized. Um, it, it is a, a symbol of what we believe in—that we have died with Christ. And when we go uh, under the water, we identify with Christ. Um, being crucified on the cross and saying our old life is dead. The punishment for sin that we were once um, under has, has died. We go under the water. It is no more. And we come out of the water and we believe that we are a new creation. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That old life is gone. New life has come. And uh, we now live in relationship with God and, uh, and, and that is our identity going forward. And so Paul says, if we've died with Him, we'll also live with Him. Secondly, he says, if we endure, we also reign with Him. Those who continue on in suffering will also reign with Him. There is rewards for those who endure. And Revelation 20 talks about Christ returning and and bringing in the kingdom. And with Him come the saints and they reign with Him. And then there is a warning. There's a warning to the fake. It's a warning to the phony. It's a warning to those who reject the gospel. It's sobering, yet true, that those who deny Jesus and the gospel, Christ will in turn deny them before the Father. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 10, verse 33, where he just says, if you deny me, I will deny you before the Father. If you if you do not accept the gospel that I provide, uh, you, you will be denied before the Father. And that is a sobering reality for which we um, continue to fight for that others would would come to know the gospel. And you can, you can read that Matthew 10, later. And finally, to the saint who is faithless like we are when we sin, when we get distracted. He remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Our salvation is is dependent upon a promise of his righteousness and even though there are times when we are faithless in our actions and we are all faithless at times he remains faithful toward us he has promised those who have trusted in him in him salvation for eternity and god is faithful he will fulfill his promise Even when we are faithless towards Him, He is always faithful in return. He cannot lie. He cannot deny Himself. So friends, this morning, are you distracted? Are you so entangled in civilian affairs that your life looks no different to an unsaved pagan? Because we have responsibilities that Christ has called us to, that we do by the grace that He's given us, and we've only got this life, the time that has been allotted to us, for us to do that. Now, we've all got other responsibilities as well, and there's, there's a lot of good responsibilities that you're a part of. You, you're a parent, and you need to work, and you need to earn money, and you need to pay bills, and you need to do all these things, and, and those are all good things that you should rightfully be engaged in. But they all fall under the greatest responsibility, the greater calling, and that of forwarding on the mission to preach to protect the gospel, no matter the cost. And for that, we must be like soldiers, singularly focused, undistracted. So, where are you susceptible to this right now? I didn't read verse 7, we, we skipped over that, but But uh, Paul just says to Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Just think over what Paul has said. Examine your own heart as to where do I desire things of the world more than I desire Christ Himself. I'll just tell you now, it's going to sound stupid because it is stupid, but it's true. I'm just susceptible to this right now in golf. Of all things golf, where I could just play golf every day. I just love it. It's so much fun. And uh, if I had the time and the money and um, I didn't want to have a wife, then, uh, then I could play golf every day. It's just, I just love doing it. But if I'm not careful... That can soon become my focus where I just have all my desires heading in that direction. My heart is aligned in that direction. But I don't want to get to the end of my life. I don't want to pass away. I don't want to get into eternity and stand before Jesus and brag to Him about how I shot par on the city golf course one day. Or how I I managed to get a birdie or something just, you know, stupid like that even though those things aren't bad in themselves. I just don't want to stand before my Savior who died on a cross and and tell Him, I used my life to go after golf and improve so much in that game because it has no eternal significance. God has put you here in this life right now and He has gifted you here in Toowoomba, Australia. And that's where you are right now for, the, for, the, for however long. And He's given you a greater purpose. And you can't be entangled in civilian pursuits or you will never fulfill it. And one day you will stand before the Savior and you want to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you these gifts and you used them to further the mission Of the church, and I am so proud of you. Come and enter and enjoy the fruits of the kingdom because you were a soldier. Remember Jesus Christ the first one to suffer and die. And so this morning, we do that. We do not want to be a soldier for our own purposes. We do not want to go on the mission without being connected to our Savior, without more in love with Jesus than we were yesterday.